Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. How do organizations prepare for cyber attacks? Does red teaming work? And how close are we to a cyber war? Over the last few years, more firms have turned to red team security testing, putting their organizations through realistic attack simulations. But how do we balance the cost and time these tests demand with the wider needs of the business? Our guest this week is Ruben Aronashvili, founder and CEO of Israeli cybersecurity company Sai. Today, he works with large enterprises globally to help them tackle the most difficult cyber challenges. Before that, though, he was one of the founders of Israel's Red Team Intelligence Unit. And as such, he has some unique insights into the line between a hacking incident and cyber terrorism and cyber warfare, and how close we could be to crossing that line. He joins us now. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so I'm Ruby Aronishvili. I started my professional career in the Israeli army. Um, I was in a special program, academic program of the IDF, in which I've done my B science and M science degree in computer science and math. Then I joined the cybersecurity unit of the IDF um, and was the founder of Section 21, which is the Israeli Red Team. Uh, I've spent seven years of service there, um, building the team from scratch all the way to fully operational uh, capability that was um, recently, I mean, in the last 10 years, uh, announced officially as one of the most critical capabilities of the state of Israel. Um, since then, uh, 2012, uh, I decided to leave the army and go to a more civilian career path, founded the uh, SAI, this is how it's pronounced, by the way. Um, and uh, since then, I'm leading the company uh, in the growth uh, journey that we have, uh, working with uh, more than 500 uh, global organizations worldwide. So enjoying the journey quite a lot, actually. We'll come back to what you do as an organization in a moment. But what do you think are the most critical issues for organizations right now in terms of their cyber defense? No, that's a great question, as I think that, you know, it's always the same. When we analyze organizations and, you know, we all tend to think that the next generation problems, those are the issues. And, you know, when we analyze organizations, we come over and over again to the same fundamental issues, the basic foundations of cybersecurity, whether it's identity management and password management, which is a huge issue in most organizations that we are working with. Again, there are a lot of solutions, a lot of capabilities out there, and still we say that that's a major issue. So that's identity management, account management, password management, and access management. All of those will be at my number one uh, topic. Then when it comes to detection capabilities and um, more than that, response capabilities in organizations, those are also becoming uh, more and more crucial as we see organizations evolving today. And those are still, in some organizations, immature capabilities. Um, two other things that I would mention, uh, you know, as a part of my top five. So I mentioned, as I said, identity and access management. Then we talk about uh, um, detection and response capabilities. Then we have network segmentation and segregation, which to me is one also of the biggest issues that we see. Then we have data protection, how well data is first classified and then protected. 
maybe my number five item will be cloud-related securities, that misconfigurations in the cloud environment with the digital transformation. See that that's a major issue in the fundamental capabilities of an organization. We have other issues, of course, of how to quantify risk, how to prioritize what is more important, but those are more strategic problems uh, in an organization. There's quite a long list. And I think when I talk to people in the industry, it's a common one that often it comes back to the basics not being done well enough. So before we get into the more advanced cybersecurity defense measures and talking about red teams, why is it that, in your opinion, organizations, and we can include governments as well as industry in this, why is it that organizations fail to make that investment in those cybersecurity basics? I think that, um, first of all, it's a tough problem, right? So uh, although it sounds fundamental and basic to, to be able to deal with the problems they've just mentioned, but it's not that easy. The reason for that is that the attack surface is growing exponentially. Data is not uh, under control as it was in the past. So now you have SaaS applications and we have cloud environments and you know things are, or data items or assets are leaving the premises um, in a very continuous basis. And when you take all of those items into consideration, you find that the problem has grown exponentially while investment and identification capabilities of the problems have grown best case scenario linearly. So there is no match between the relevant understanding of the cybersecurity threat landscape, the investment level and the efficiency level of the budget. Um, so to, to be more accurate on that, we see organizations investing more. That's, there's no question around that. Um, but how do you know that the investment level that you put on cybersecurity is actually in the right places? How do you know that that's actually efficient? Or to your question, how do you know that you're actually solving the fundamental problems? For that, you need to have a continuous loop sorry, of threat detection and identification, vulnerability identification correlated to the relevant threat, and then, of course, putting the relevant um, the relevant uh, budget in the right places in order to uh, make sure that you're actually able to solve the relevant or the true problems that we've identified uh, during the process. And that has to be done on a continuous basis. And most organizations today are actually failing in doing that. Those are basic procedures maybe, but um, it's not integrated so well, at least how we see that it's not integrated so well in the organizational standard operating procedures. Well, that then is where testing comes in, isn't it? And where the red team is so important, because unless you put these things to the test, you'll never know where the weaknesses are. Right, exactly. So technical visibility into the risk, that's highly important. Going back to when you were in the military then, and how, at the time, how revolutionary was it to start putting together a cyber red team? We all know about red teams in military drills generally, but was that something that had been discussed prior in terms of let's apply those principles to cybersecurity? Or was that very much at the time you were involved with setting up the IDF quite a new concept, at least for, for IT and information security? Yeah, so it was discussed before my time, um, but the concept, how, did, how to do that, how to make sure that you don't harm, uh, the, let's say, the operational capabilities of the organization, how to make sure that data is not being, um, in a way, harmed or leaked or um, the in integrity of the data is being uh, also uh, compromised. So there were multiple thinking procedures, right, or processes on how to do things right 
But when I joined the army, we came up with a very specific structure and uh, we said, hey, we're going to do that. And then, you know, when we got the green light uh, from the relevant uh, officers uh, in the army, we started to to work with a specific modus operandi and then we changed, you know, and improved as we as we went. So um, to me, it was just uh, the 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 concept of taking or making the decision uh, to start and once that was made i think uh, the rest uh, was the history so it was quite uh, you know from re- revolution point of view it was quite clear that the the organization wasn't ready for that at the beginning right our organization the idf uh, as you know uh, from the political standpoint from structuring standpoint from who is reporting to whom, how you keep the data, what kind of systems are you able to test, what is allowed, what is not allowed. The rules of engagement were not really clear, but that's something that was improved very, very fast once the decision was made and the Israeli army decided that it's going to happen. That's a capability that is important. It, it took only a few months to make it in the right structure. And that's something that for an army organization is almost zero time. Well, that's true. The military don't always move at the most uh, most rapid pace. But from the lessons learned then, from your experience there, do you see that commercial organizations and non-military areas of government go through a similar cycle of deciding whether to invest in red teams and spend the time on these exercises because they they are expensive not just in cash terms but also in terms of other resources particularly time they're disruptive to the business too right so yes definitely we've seen that uh, throughout the years and uh, we think or we see that uh, more mature organizations you know the large multinational organizations are already in a more advanced situation there in some cases, we've seen also smaller organizations that are um, taking the concept as a very important one and, uh, you know, investing quite heavily on uh, on uh, red teaming in general, penetration testing and other kind of offensive security capabilities. I mean, I mean all, only offense for defense, of course. Um, but, you know, we see a very clear trend of the industry, you know, following like what we see in the, uh, what we saw in the army. So, you know, when I left the army, I saw a gap that I can evaluate it in something that is in the ranges of five years from the level of sophistication of attacks and protection capabilities that we had in the army. And, you know, more or less five years later, we've seen that also in the commercial civilian world. Today, the the gap is much smaller, right? So we see today a gap of maybe several months to 12, maybe 18 months, the worst case scenario. So the gap is really getting smaller and smaller. So you know, the, the industry, the civilian world um, is becoming uh, also part of the modern battlefield, whether we want to believe it or not. That's exactly what we see, you know, even lately with the Russia-Ukraine situation, right? Multiple civilian organizations were involved in massive attacks that are considered to be nation level. The thing is you can't really separate one aspect of critical infrastructure from another. So civilian infrastructure and military infrastructure is so interdependent these days, particularly in the areas of the area of communication systems, but not only in, in that. Uh, but when we, for example, something that you noted down in, in our pre-brief before we, we had this discussion was uh, the growth of, uh, of, of IT supply chain attacks. Is that an example of something where going through the testing phase and introducing red teams would actually help? Because 
Supply chain, ta- supply chain attacks have caught a lot of organisations off guard. Um, solar winds, but not only solar winds. And lots of people in the industry expect these type of attacks to continue to grow. In fact, we don't know how much malware is already in supply chains that has not yet been detected. It's a, it's a known unknown. So from that perspective, is that a critical threat? And would you rank that uh, as a greater threat than, for example, ransomware, which is still generating an awful lot of attention as well, and especially in the media and um, in government circles? Yeah, so, you know, ransomware is a specific implementation of an attack. Something that starts from a supply chain can end up as, as a ransomware. So I don't see, I mean, any any kind of, uh, you know, uh, distinguish between those two uh, two specific attacks. So the, the supply chain is the access vector. How do you get access to the organization? So, you know, you have multiple ways to do that. One of them, for example, one of the most common attacks that we see today are, uh, for example, phishing attacks, right? It's for, for the last years is something that is still very common and very successful. But the point around uh, supply chain is that, you know, the, the, the pyramid approach in which you are able to attack or to invest in attacking a single organization and from that organization to getting access to multiple other organizations, that's something that by definition provides ROI that is, I mean, return on investment that is very, very attractive for an attacker. That's why the supply chain method will be used more and more, right? As it makes a lot of sense for the attackers. And more than that, I can tell you that specifically in the supply chain, we see that the more or the easier way to go would be the services or service providers rather than technology providers. Although you might think that technology providers will give you much wider attack surface in a way, like solar winds that you mentioned. But if you look at the example and a different um, case, I mean, we have multiple cases uh, like that lately in Europe and uh, in some other cases also in the US, when you attack a service provider, whether it's a cloud service provider or an IT service provider, you get instant access, usually in high privileges to, to an organization in a way that is usually less monitored because you consider these people from the supply chain organization, from the service provider to be part of your team. And then in a way you have an inherited risk that you are not even monitoring as it's out of your control. So from my point of view, even focusing the the specific uh, scenario that you've mentioned, not the broader term of of, uh, supply chain, but specifically service providers, to me that will be the thing that we'll see a lot of emphasis or a lot of focus on coming from offensive groups in general. So it comes back to that linked nature of so many things in cybersecurity, which you've highlighted. But then how does an organization go about dealing with that? So if we look at it from the individual business point of view, first of all, how would they how would they approach protecting themselves against that type of attack, whether it is more in the supply chain or indeed dealing with the outcome of a ransomware incident? You know, it, it goes back to the to the fundamentals as you as we just discussed, right? When you have the supply uh, supplier working with you, the fact that you are using uh, manpower from a different organization doesn't mean that you need to provide full access, unmonitored or unsupervised access to your organization. So, to give you an example, you you can, for example, provide access to a service provider using your own credential set, like in your own domain, your own uh, environment or you can use the access coming from the service provider himself. So to me, if you do that on your environment, separate the access and not not allowing any kind of access from the supplier network to your network, if that's not necessary, 
then you shrink the, the attack surface quite significantly. And that's something that is very easy to do if you think about it, but still it seems like for convenience in a lot of cases, uh, that's something that is not being done. And then you find yourself in a situation that you have full access, live access from a single service providers to 5,000 organizations worldwide, uh, like we've seen, for example, in the Kaseya case uh, that uh, was famous last year in the, in, uh, in the US. Um, then, of course, once you have this kind of access and this service provider is compromised, then it's an in immediate access to other organizations, which to me shouldn't be the case, right? The fact that the service provider is compromised, still, you need to be in a situation that you are able to react. Second thing that I would say on that is that you always need to assume, um, I mean, the assume breach kind of concept, that's something that really build every cybersecurity program based on that. So you cannot only trust a single, uh, let's say, a protection mechanism uh, as it will become the single point of failure from your, kind, uh, from your point of view. So if you take into consideration the connecting points um, to your organization by a service provider and you put protection mechanisms, maybe not to prevent the next breach, but to uh, limit the impact of the next breach as it's going to happen, right? It's, it's not preventing 100% of the risks or 100% of, of the offensive opportunities against your organization. That's something that is practically impossible. However, limiting the impact or making sure that, the, uh, that once compromised, the environment that is going to be impacted is very limited, very contained, um, and has no access to business critical assets, that's definitely something that can be done. And, you know, as an organization, that's exactly what we do. We are trying to provide um, specific guidance on how to make sure that you understand the risk, contain the risk, and in the end, provide specific mitigation items and security controls to make sure that in any case, even if a, a specific cybersecurity-related uh, attack is um, is going to attack you or to hit your organization, then you're still have you're still going to have a very limited impact. I mean, something that can be definitely manageable and within the acceptable risk of the organization. Well, that brings us back to the concept of the resilient organization, where we've seen this in other areas. We've seen this in business continuity in particular, where if an organization isn't able to pick itself up and get back to operations after there's been an incident, the consequences and costs of that incident will be much greater. And, and that is, again, an area where it's you can overplay drawing lessons from the military, but I think that's one area where lessons from the military are relevant because military organizations spend a lot of time practicing that ability to adjust and adapt to the unpredicted. And oftentimes in business, that's, again, hard to do because of the cost and because of the disruption to day-to-day -day operations. Is that something then that you feel is part of the picture? So not so much just having a red team, but actually throwing the red team at different targets within the organization, using different attack vectors, and seeing how people cope. And in fact, our guest on previous week, um, Rebecca McCohen, she was talking about the uh, the psychological impact of particularly ransomware attacks on individuals within the business. Uh, you can listen to that on uh, on our podcast to say it's previous episode. And that was quite interesting because, again, she's also done work with the military and contrasts the fact that simply in the civilian world, people aren't trained to deal with that. They're not trained to deal with that high stress environment that a cyber attack can cause. I think that uh, in in the end, you know, when you talk, uh, talk about practice, you know, um, that's something that is highly important, exercising the teams on different targets, different uh, attack scenarios, 
with very specific targets or objectives um, to um, to the organization that's something that will be highly important um, so taking that into consideration and making sure that people that are not used to work in the in this uh, military environment um, or stressful environment as you mentioned they need to be trained on a continuous basis and in the end you know when you think about who is going to manage the crisis in your organization which of course you need to be prepared for that's something that has to be um, identified before the training to the relevant people whether it's management whether it's the operational people whether it's the technical people that will support the process all of them needs to be trained in a real-life scenario Uh, with these red team exercises or with um, surprise exercises that you do to, to the team, including management uh, all the way, uh, including the, you know, the legal team, the PR team, uh, communication uh, team, uh, customer communication, and all of them, right? It has to be part of the process. Otherwise, if you, the first time that you are going to exercise that will be in the case of an incident, will be in a very serious situation, of course. Yeah, and again, it's not just military, it's other civil defense organizations, uh, law enforcement. Even we're seeing this more in transportation, energy, and areas like that. There are areas where there's good practice in how to deal with adversity and the unexpected. Uh, but again, I... Drawing on some of what previous guests have discussed, it's often that because cyber attacks apply or are being directed against such a wide variety of organizations, then we tend to find organizations that aren't prepared. So just before we move on to, to the other point I want to cover off around um, the global security picture, uh, if, if you are in an organization that isn't one that does regular testing and training for, say, um, disaster recovery situations or business continuity situations, how would you start doing that, particularly with cyber in mind? As part of your program, I mean, The concept of security testing and integration of security testing into the organizational decision-making process, that's something that should start from the operational level. That means setting up the targets, what we call the threat model. First of all, who are you concerned? Um, I mean, what, what are the threat actors that you're concerned about? And second, what are the business critical assets that you want to protect? Those are two basic fundamental questions that, uh, you know, asking those questions right at the beginning will be very important. Once you define that or identify that, you know, first of all, for example, external attacker, insider threat, supply chain that you, we just mentioned, the Chinese attacker or whatever kind of, uh, you know, threat source that you had in mind. On the other side, you need to take into consideration what are you trying to protect, as I mentioned, business critical assets, whether it's intellectual property, privacy, business continuity. I mean, any kind of uh, damage that will create significant damage to the organization or significant significant impact to the organization, first you need to to list those. Once you've done that, you can target or direct the, red, the specific red team to try and achieve specific, um, let's say, wins on those specific attack routes from the potential threat sources that we've highlighted all the way to the business critical assets. And once those are successful, we need to identify or to understand Um, how those um, items will be uh, will be taken into consideration. I mean, the vulnerabilities, how would you take those into consideration in your mitigation planning? So if you want to think about it in a way, you can think about a map from the starting points, which are the threat sources to the business critical assets, and then you need to put the right obstacles in the right places 
making sure that you are able to anticipate the attacker's steps. And that's the whole point of threat teaming and uh, what we call proactive security in general. So it's not about sitting in the security operations center and waiting for something to happen and then reacting. As you know, by definition, it's too late because something already happened. But going proactively, identifying the gaps, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and then mitigating those in the relevant order based on the relevant investment level of the organization. But to start with, you need to first identify the threat model of your organization and then execute those red teaming uh, exercises on a continuous basis uh, while mitigating in the background the relevant uh, vulnerabilities that were identified. So focusing the testing resources on the areas that you've identified as the most critical Absolutely. Now, we have seen in the last few weeks some discussion about whether organizations need to increase their investment in cybersecurity and the potential risks from an overspill of the situation in the Ukraine in Eastern Europe that private organizations, non-government organizations could find themselves under attack as a result of that, whether directly or indirectly. What's your view on this? And do you think that cyber warfare is a possible consequence, either directly, what we're witnessing at the moment, or potentially something that we will see more of in the near future? Yeah, I mean, mean, that's a very natural way uh, of evolving from my point of view, because when, you know, as as part of a war, there are multiple objectives that you have as a a country or as a nation, right? Uh, One of the things is, of course, to make sure that you're able to influence government, but one of the ways to put pressure on an organi- or, or on a country or a nation, let's say, is by, by harming the civilian population there. So think about attacking a bank, right? So it's not really a critical, I mean, in Israel, it is a critical infrastructure, but in a lot of countries, it's not, right? As it's not directly uh, relevant to, to the, um, let's say, to the sustainability of, uh, of the country. And still, if you harm banks, if you harm even the supermarket, you know, the online orders, that's something that can and will create some kind of interference with the daily uh, uh, routines of, uh, of the civilian population. That's something that will put a lot of pressure, will harm the, the psychological uh, aspect of the people, as you just mentioned, of the individual, right? When you see that someone is able to attack you, to attack your country, to attack your uh, bank or your safe zone, the psychology around that and the impact that it creates on the civilian population creates uh, a, a lot of, um, I would say, negative impact on the people, that's something that will populate quite immediately to government and will influence, in the end, the overall situation in the country. So that's something that, you know, the, Sorry, the, the, you the return on investment uh, when it comes to uh, cybersecurity attacks on population, commercial organizations, uh, and not necessarily government organizations, the return on investment there is quite amazing when you think about it from this point of view. But again, that draws on what we were discussing earlier on, which is the fact that critical infrastructure is so linked between the civilian and the military worlds now that one depends on the other. Um, But do you draw a distinction between cyber warfare, as in cyber activity as a tool of war, and cyber war, which will be a conflict fought primarily in cyberspace. And it's about 10 years ago that the academic Thomas Ridd wrote uh, a paper, wrote a book, in fact, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, arguing that it would never develop into outright war and would uh, more likely settle at a sub-warfare level, uh, so sub-conflict level, an unavowed conflict, if, if you like, or um, the, the continuation of conflict by other means in cyberspace. Um, but what have you seen and what do you think is going to come of that? Could we end up with 
countries or blocks of countries directly fighting each other in cyberspace and that leading to hostilities in the conventional military sense, kinetic hostilities, or, or is it more likely to form, make, make another form and perhaps evolve into, say, a form of terrorism uh, or, or indeed uh, potentially be more relevant in the world of crime, which we're already seeing quite a lot of organised crime groups uh, using cyber as a vector? Oh, I, I really think that, you know, um, first of all, there is a very vague border between those two, between welfare and war. And I, I, I do believe that we are in cybersecurity war already for a very long time, right? So whether we like it or not, you know, think about the, the latest uh, situation. We mentioned Kaseya, right? Uh, attack against a, a public, uh, sorry, a private organization, civilian organization in the U.S. See what happened then after, right? Uh, President uh, Joe Biden went directly with a very specific, uh, uh, let's say, threat uh, to the Russian government at the time, saying that, if uh, they are not going to help with identifying the responsibles for that, there will be consequences. And that almost evolved, let's say, to, to a cyber war, not a cyber war, warfare. Now, you can argue uh, maybe on what is happening now within Russia, uh, Ukraine, and U.S. kind of triangle that we see in, in this specific war. I believe that there are aspects of war there that are not really only welfare, only tooling that you use for cybersecurity. So I believe that cyber war, as it's highly effective, will be definitely, if it's not already uh, there, will be definitely uh, something, a tool in the future. So I totally don't agree or disagree with uh, with uh, the statement that you've mentioned before, that there won't be a cyber war. I can tell you that I was in the army um, cyber uh, attacks that were nation to nation, like uh, at least based on uh, public knowledge, right? Uh, the the Israel government and the U.S. government were using offensive tools in order to harm the nuclear uh, efforts of the Iranian uh, nation, right? Uh, that's something that was much more efficient when it comes to results. Uh, when you compare it, for example, to take a combat jet with uh, one ton of, uh, I don't know, any kind of armor that you would like, that will delay the maybe the, the, the nuclear program for one or two years. Uh, this attack, Stuxnet, uh, was the official name, right? Uh, actually created a delay of five to six years, and that's only the declared part of it. Uh, we don't know what we don't know, right? So it's not only that it's highly effective, uh, sometimes it's cleaner, and provides, as I said before, much higher return on investment. If that's then the case, and I, I don't disagree with you, but if that is then the case, do we need some rules of war for cyberspace? Yes, but you know, you need uh, rules of war for for, so, for kinetic war, right? And that's something that we don't see really being followed, unfortunately, right? As uh, you know, crime, uh, war crimes. That's something that we hear about continuously and in a lot of places. So. The, the simple answer is yes, we need, of course, uh, as you know, uh, the, the same kind of damages or impact that you can have on civilian population that you have from kinetic war, you can have from cybersecurity war, for example, if you attack nuclear facilities, right? Is that okay or not? Because the damage there can be so significant um, to, uh, to impact uh, quite a lot of uh, citizens, right? So... To me, of course, you need to have some kind of structure to it. The problem is that in case of war, we don't see nations, countries really adhere to those specific rules or, um, you know, uh, any kind of rules of engagement that you want to have. So that's nice in theory, 
practically doesn't happen. So if they're not following the rules of war in kinetic warfare, then it would be uh, unrealistic to expect them to follow uh, rules or codes of practice in Cyber 2. What then would you say, though, to organizations who take the view, and, and some do, that this is not their problem, that this is a question for nation states and government and as an individual business, why should they spend their money? Why should they divert their profits into improving cybersecurity? Um, the, the simple answer for that is that sometimes, um, let's say investment that is in the right places with the right level of investment, right, can, can save quite a lot of damage and impact rather than trying and sitting or waiting for some kind of help coming from government. So in the end, you are responsible for your own destiny. Uh, that's very unfortunate, but that's the situation. So even in the previous uh, situations that we've seen, whether it's Ukraine or any other war that we've seen, you see that in the end, the, the companies stood alone and needed to protect themselves. So without the cybersecurity, uh, let's say, supporting ecosystem in your organization, it will be very hard or it would be very hard to protect the organization against significant hit. Now, investment in cybersecurity is like investment in any other capability that you have in your organization. It's, it's some kind of business enabler in your organization. That means if you invest in IT, if you invest in productivity, if you invest in technology, you need to invest in cybersecurity because the potential damage uh, out there can be quite significant. Now, whether there are rules for that, whether nations will come and attack you, which will be very hard to protect against, of course, still, it doesn't mean that you need to skip or to, to you know, to, um, to give up upfront as, you know, in the end, it will be used also by cyber criminals, by uh, uh, offensive groups or any kind of uh, bored teenagers that, uh, uh, that have too much time uh, to spend and then they can attack your organization as those kind of tools, those are kind of weapons are available to everyone today, not only for nations. And that's the main problem that you have. And that then is one of the biggest risks that the the bar to entry into cyber warfare or indeed cyber criminal activity is now very, very low indeed. Right. Ruby Aranashvili, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Ruby Aranashvili on how the increasing cyber threat impacts all organizations and isn't something that can be left to governments alone to resolve. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we'll be speaking to an IT leader who has been through a ransomware attack and come out the other side. We hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.